Our scripture passage for this morning comes from the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 15, verses 24 through 35. And before I read the text, I just want to say a few words. One is, is this, while we are in this season of putting our sermons online, we are going to be sort of mixing up our morning and evening sermon series a, a bit. This week, we're going to dip into our evening sermon series and continue that series from 1 Samuel. And then next week, the plan is that we're going to begin a short three-part series where we focus on the suffering, passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus from the Gospel of Mark. And before we read this morning, I want to remind you in the narrative where we are and what has happened. Um, not only has it been several weeks since we looked at the last passage from 1 Samuel, but I know that many you of you this morning, uh, or at whatever time you're watching the video, uh, may not have even heard the message that came before. And so let me set the stage for you before we do our reading this morning. Um, God has sent Saul to go against the Amalekites. They were supposed to, Saul and the Israelites, were supposed to totally devote them to destruction. And instead, under Saul's passive, weak, permissive leadership, the Israelites kept the best spoil for themselves. They also spared Agag, who was the king of the Amalekites. Now, we don't know every rationale for why Saul did this. We don't know if it was because of money, if it was because of fame, uh, but we do know one thing, which is what Calvin observed, which was that Saul believed he was more merciful than God. And so in last week's passage, when he was confronted about these things, Saul defended himself, basically arguing that he had technically done it. He was making a technical argument with Samuel. He, he, was, he, he defended himself instead of simply admitting that God was right. And so in verses 22 and 23 last week, Sam, uh, well, last time we looked at the passage anyway, uh, Samuel very sternly told Saul that he was guilty of deep rebellion against God. And so as our reading begins this morning, we, we see that the threats God is making begin to leave an impact on Saul. And so that's where we begin reading in verse 24. And so... Hear now the word of God. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord. And the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and tore it. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. 
Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this very day. Let's pray. Lord, would you search our hearts today? Would you know our hearts? Try us and know our thoughts. Root out within each and every one of our hearts any idol, any area where we are holding on to our own priorities and our own loves. Replace those idols with the love for you and for your son. Help us, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. This morning's passage is a moment of deep national humiliation for this leader. And we don't have to look very far into our own nation's history to think of leaders who made embarrassing or humiliating personal decisions that ended up being humbling to them on the national stage and on the world stage. Much of our history is dotted with leaders who did something wrong, got caught, and then offered required public apologies. Every leader has a breaking point where they're willing to yield to the pressure to admit wrongdoing. Now, some are more stubborn than others. But the sad reality is most of the time when public apologies or repentance do happen, it is usually after the person has been caught and the person in question is trying to minimize the repercussions of what they've done. In a sense, we've all seen what happens this morning to one degree or another. A leader uh, who has disgraced himself and now has to find a way to see if he can salvage things, if he can keep power in spite of the deep error of his ways. We may be used to looking to the Bible for examples to how to live. Now, I don't think that's the best way to read the Bible entirely, and yet there are, is a biblical rationale for why we should do this sort of thing. Hebrews 11 is a prime example. It is the hall of faith of Hebrews, and it tells us person after person after person who is held up for us as a figure that we ought to emulate their faith. And something we hear, see here this morning, though, is not every example in the Bible is a positive example. Oftentimes, the example is a negative example, uh, an example of how not to live, uh, what false faith looks like. And Saul is an example of false faith for us today. And this morning, we'll see that true repentance comes from the heart, and true repentance is about more than avoiding the consequences of our sin. So let's look at the three ways that this plays itself out through the life of Saul and through the condemnation that Samuel brings his way. 
First this morning, we see from Saul a slow, late repentance. A slow, late repentance. Um, Saul hears Samuel's charge against him. And, and so Saul offers a very, what we would call a weak repentance, if we want to call it repentance at all. Um, look closely at how he does this in verses 24 and 25. He says, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And we'll look closer at this, but, but, he, but he sees the problem, right? He broke God's word. He ignored his command. He got caught, and he wants God to forgive and move past this as quickly as he can. So notice, Saul says the right words, right? right? He says, I have transgressed the commandments of the Lord. He gets the, the words right. But he doesn't have a posture of heart that matches those words. Now, I got this term, slow, late repentance, uh, from uh, Andrew Willett, who was a Puritan writer in the 16th century. Um, and this is what Willett says about what Saul does here. He says, Saul here is an example of slow, late repentance. He does not make a simple and plain confession. It's it's very hard for hypocrites to be brought to make a true confession of their sin. Instead, they prefer to lay the fault on others. So Willett says this is a slow, late repentance. Saul has to be forced to make his confession. He's very reluctant to do it. And he doesn't seem willing at all. In other words, he never would have said these words if Samuel hadn't kept pressing and pressing and pressing on him. Maybe you can relate to that. Have you ever been confronted by someone for your sin? Has anyone ever come to you and said, you have sinned? What are you going to do about it? One thing you probably know, this is true about me anyway, is that, is that we don't always respond very well. Um, often, when someone comes to us with our sin, and I would say in my family, most often, it is a family member who says, you have sinned against me. And maybe you can relate to that as well. Um, but oftentimes, when someone says, you have sinned, what do we do? We have excuses. We have the list of things that we feel like pushed us into that sin, and we want to make sure that those factors are known, right? Factors we want to blame. Instead of simply saying, I have a bad heart, I've done wrong, will you forgive me? Going to God and saying, God, I have sinned against you. Instead, what do we do? We hesitate. And we want to make sure that the person knows we're really a good person, right? We're just in a bad situation. And God reminds us of real repentance, though. In Isaiah 66, 2, it's difficult to find a better verse on what true repentance looks like. Listen to this. God says, this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Are you humble when you see your sin? 
Do you tremble at the word of God? Do you stand up for yourself? Or do you bow your head and say, Lord, you are right and I am wrong. How do you respond when you realize that your sin has found you out? Saul offers excuses and he offers his excuse for why he did this. He says, I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, what we see here in this instance is misdirected fear. Understand something, it is right to live in fear. We should all live in fear, believe it or not. But the problem is not that he feared. The problem is what he feared. What did he fear? He feared the people. He cared what they thought. He wanted their support. He needed them behind him. He wanted them to love him. The, vibe, the Bible is very clear. We should fear. Fear should be the posture of every person who loves God, but that's the difference. We are supposed to fear God. What does Proverbs say? Proverbs says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It isn't the whole story. It's just the start of the story, right? It says it's the beginning of wisdom. And so if you don't fear God, you don't even have the beginning. You don't even have the spark of wisdom, according to the Bible. How many smart people live in this world, and yet they don't have wisdom? They're two very different things. But see, Saul doesn't fear God. He isn't ready to even start talking about wise things. He doesn't have the beginning of wisdom. He has the fear of man. He has no fear of God. And notice that the people are evidently the thing that prods him along, if we take his words at face value, but they're also his excuse. It's hard to pick through how much of what he says is sincere, how much of this he believes, how much of this is obfuscation, trying to hide what's really gone on. We don't know. Now, eventually... Saul does say those words that need to be said. He says, I have sinned. He says it. I have sinned. God gets him to say the words. He extracts the words from Saul's mouth through the labor and work and threats that Saul brings against him. It's a weak repentance. In fact, I don't even think it's fair to call it a weak repentance. It, it really is no repentance at all. How can we tell? How can we tell this is, this is false? Well, there are a few things that we can see in the text. One thing that drives his repentance is a desire to escape consequences. Notice what he does. He waits until the kingdom is taken away before he repents. He only repents, he only says the words that need to be said once the consequences show themselves. It's very common for people to say that they are sorry, to admit their sin once they are caught, or once they start to face the consequences of those sins. Saul repents, again, if it's really repentance, I don't think it is, but Saul goes through the motions because he wants to escape the results of his sin. That's one of the ways we know this is false. 
A second thing that drives Saul's repentance is his desire to keep power, right? It's very blatant. It's, it's so blatant that you almost feel embarrassed for Saul that he is not the kind of politician who can at least disguise his trickery first, right? Because in verse 30, he says to Samuel, I have sinned, yet honor me. <laughs> he, doesn't even, he doesn't even let I have sinned hang in the air. He immediately moves to his real request, what he really wants. He doesn't ease into it at all. He says, yeah, I'm sorry, but honor me in front of these people. Saul needs the support of the people, at least he thinks he does, to keep the kingdom running. He needs the vote of confidence from Samuel, which is really important to him. Without Samuel's support... His claim to be God's man on the throne becomes shaky. Saul repents, not because of sorrow for sin, but because he wants to keep power. He wants to keep power. This is another indication that this is a false confession of sin. This is a false repentance. Now, there's a third thing that drives Saul's repentance. It's very closely connected with the last point, and that's this. He repents out of a need to save face. In verse 30, he says... Honor me before the elders of the people and before Israel. He didn't say, honor me in secret. He says, let's do another public ceremony, right? Let's, let's get everyone together so they can all remember that, that, that I'm still king. Let's reenact that ceremony that we did a couple years ago where everybody celebrated me and talked about what a great king I was going to be. Let's go back to the honeymoon phase again of my service to this nation. Lancelot Andrews says this, There is no animal so ambitious, no chameleon that so pants after air, as does the hypocrite after popular praise. For it he fasts, and so hungry and thirsty is he after that, that you shall never even hear him beg for it. You shall even hear him beg for it. Honor me now before the elders of my people, says one of them. It is Saul. Saul confesses so he might keep his credit and have his reputation and not to lose one jot or tittle. Is there sin in your life that you need to repent of? Don't wait until the situation becomes unstable or unbearable. Don't be driven to it by necessity. Do it now. And do it for the honor of God. And do it for the good of your soul. That's what Saul misses here. Second, today we see a king without honor. In verse 26, Samuel tells him, for starters, no, I won't go back as your support or to help keep you in power. That's not how this works. But the interesting thing is he, he does still go back with him, you'll notice. Um, but he doesn't go back to show him honor. He doesn't go back to honor his request or, or give him what he wants. Because remember what happened. God told Samuel already, back in verse 11 of this chapter, I regret that I made Saul king. For he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. So God has given his verdict, right? The verdict never changes. The verdict actually gets amplified and expanded on 
even more today. Yeah. Saul has broken the commandments. God does not accept his fake apology. Saul has disqualified himself. Saul is out. Saul is out. Now, in fact, to use Samuel's language, he has the kingdom torn from him. What does it look like in action for him to have the kingdom torn from him? Does it mean he stops being king? Well, no. Oddly enough, he gets to keep being king, for starters. So whatever it means for the kingdom to be torn from Saul, it doesn't mean, boom, you're not the king anymore. He isn't automatically removed from being king. In fact, if you look at Saul, Saul continues as king for a full 40 years until the day he dies. Having the kingdom torn doesn't mean that he stops ruling. What it did mean was this. He had the right to the kingdom taken from him. And he had the right to the kingdom given to David, right? Saul serves as king, but he lives under the burden now of knowing that he isn't God's choice. He lives knowing that God doesn't want him. I think leaders often struggle with the fear that people will see through them. That one day everyone will wake up and realize that, that they shouldn't be in charge and that they're just a pretender, they're just a fake. The more pastor friends I have, just as an example, the, the more especially, the more I realize that this is true. Um, this can especially be a problem for those who don't have a strong sense of God's calling on their life. Uh, men who don't have a strong sense of God's calling on their life oftentimes constantly struggle and watch the people and are afraid what people think of them. He has the kingdom torn from him. Saul now has to live the rest of his life as king, all the while carrying the burden of knowing that he shouldn't be the king. Instead, Samuel tells him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Now, as readers, we know that this neighbor Samuel is talking about is David. We, we know that. In the narrative, we haven't met David yet, but what we're going to meet David soon. What makes David better? God calls him better. What makes David better? It isn't that David has done more good things than Saul. It isn't what God, that's not what God means by better. What he does mean is that David has a heart of love for God, and Saul doesn't. David loves God, Saul doesn't love God. We're not talking about good deeds, we're talking about love. Now love shows itself in good deeds, but they're not the same thing. God is not talking about sinlessness here. David is not a sinless man. We learn this very, very well by reading the narrative of David. Later on in David's life, David becomes king. And when David sins majorly, and we'll see that later when we get further into the Samuel series, when David sins majorly and God confronts David, David admits his sin and he repents without passing the blame. Unlike Saul, who gives the laundry list of reasons, you don't see David give a laundry list of reasons. And so God accepts his repentance. Here, when Saul seems to do the same thing, 
God doesn't accept his repentance, and he doesn't put away his sin. This is not because David performed per, uh, repentance better than Saul did, right? This passage is not a lesson on how we are supposed to act so as to get real repentance. This is not about performance. This is not about deeds at all. There was a time in church history where the church became quite focused on acts of performances before a person could be considered forgiven. People would be required to make long, arduous displays of repentance. And how would they do that? They would perform that through fasting, through weeping, through prayer, through other expressions of sorrow. Some would go even further. They would flagellate themselves with a whip. They would wear hair shirts. That is basically the equivalent of, of wearing a potato sack underneath of your clothing so that you were constantly itching and dis discomforted. Whatever they could do to show God they were sorry through their performance of acts. The Roman Catholic Church still has a practice of, of penance in the church. Uh, penance is a word that means punishment, penalty. Um, in fact, it's not just the Roman Catholic Church's practice. It is one of their sacraments. In the same way that, that we have baptism and we have the Lord's Supper, they have penance. Saul wants in on that. Let's do something public. Let's do something that people can see. Let's do something visible. Let's make this happen. And Saul is just wrong. This is not about deeds. This is not about putting on a show. It isn't about external, visible shows of piety. This is about faith. This is about true sorrow for sin. This is about a change of heart. And that can't be acted out. In fact, in fact, David, the man Samuel says is better than Saul, knows what God calls for. And that's why we see him say it. David knows what God wants. And he says it in Psalm 51, verse 17. David says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart. That's what God wants. Saul is not asking for that. Saul's head is not even in that place here. This is part of what makes these two men so different, right? When the day comes, David will have a broken spirit. He'll have a contrite heart. Saul never will. That is the difference between these men. Samuel tells Saul, the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel, and he turns to leave. And when he does, Saul becomes desperate. He's forgotten who made him king. He, 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 he thinks that this is up to him now, or maybe Samuel. And so he has to make this happen. What does he do? He begs Samuel to go back with him. And then when Samuel turns to leave, he grabs hold of his cloak, and he pulls on the cloak, and as he does, he tears the corner of his robe. And if you read the law of God, this tassel on the corner of Samuel's robe had symbolic meaning. It was meant to symbolize the law of God. And what does Saul do? He tears it away. He doesn't care what the word of God says. 
All he cares about is, what can I do to make this keep going? And as he tears that corner of Samuel's robe, Samuel uses it as an opportunity to drive the point home. He says, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day. Don't you see? Saul is now a king without honor. He begs Samuel to honor him, but, but he will receive no honor. God's judgment is final. What we have here is a, a, a picture of the final judgment, right? Jesus himself tells us that there will be people who stand before God and they will have their list of excuses as long as a CVS receipt. They'll have their excuses, they'll have their credentials, they'll give their list of deeds, they'll say, Lord, I served in the soup kitchen, I did this, I, I did that, I, I came every Sunday, I helped the poor, I cast out demons, and so on. And according to Jesus, these people, with all their excuses and all their credentials and all of their deeds, will look God in the face, and he'll say, go away from me. I never knew you. You acted all of these things out, and you never knew me. It isn't pleasant to think about. But isn't it gracious that Jesus warned us about this danger, this danger to think that we can brag our way in, that we can beg our way in? Saul tries to beg his way in. And the response he receives is similar to what many will hear at the final judgment. Go away. I will not return with you. No amount of begging. No amount of bragging. No amount of blaming. None of these things will protect people from God's righteous verdict. What's the answer that Jesus gives us in Scripture? It's union with Christ. Resting in Him alone by faith alone. That's the only protection from such a good and perfect verdict. Samuel lets Saul know he will not honor him. Saul is a king without honor. Third today, we see a job finished. A job now finished. You see, there's still one important piece of business that has not been addressed, and it goes way back to the beginning of this chapter, to the, the evening sermon several weeks ago now. Agag, the king of the Amalekites, is still alive. That is a problem. Agag is still breathing. That shouldn't be. He's supposed to be destroyed along with the Amalekites and with all of the Amalekites' stuff. But if you remember, Saul spared him. As, Sam, as Calvin put it, he thought he was more merciful than God. And so in verse 26, Samuel says to Saul, I will not return with you. But then um, verse 31 tells us that Samuel turned back after Saul. He goes with him. So he says, I'm not going to go with you to give you what you want. But he says, I am going to go with you because there's something I need to do. And the thing he needs to do is something that Saul could never be expected to do now. Saul, uh, Samuel knows that if he lets Saul go back, he's not going to take care of business. He's not going to do the right thing. So what does Samuel do? 
It's a disturbing and gory moment in the text, actually. The text doesn't spare us the details. Samuel says, bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. You can almost imagine this cocky, surefire world leader, chief among his people. He's used to people listening to him and wanting to know his opinion on things. And you can almost imagine him thinking that through his political machinations and shrewdness that he's about to literally get away with murder. We know from Samuel's condemnation of him that he's responsible for the deaths of innocent women and children, and yet the author says he's quite happy in this moment. He's, he comes cheerfully. We may be of the mistaken belief that all evil people are filled with sorrow, that they walk around feeling, feeling guilty, that, that, that they, they all sense that they are, that they are sinful and, and they feel bad about the state of their own hearts. We may be of the mistaken belief that that's the way sinful people are. Actually, no, that's not true. That's a mistake. Some of them walk cheerfully among us. Agag teaches us, at the very least, that mood is not an accurate measure of guilt. We live among a people, many of whom do not feel guilt and are not weighed down by their sin at all. They walk free. They live carefree lives. They live unaware and oblivious to their coming doom. Usually it was animals who were hacked to pieces as sacrifices before the Lord next to the altar. But in this case, it's the king of the Amalekites who is the sacrifice. This was a sacrifice that God had long before called for. It was a required sacrifice. It was necessary, right? Without this death, Israel would never have peace. That's why Samuel came to perform it. And here's the lesson. The death of the king brings peace to Israel. The death of the king brings peace to Israel. It's a death that God himself called for. It's a death that had to happen. Until Agag dies, there can be no peace. There can be no rest for Israel. And this reminds us in many ways of the death of Christ, right? Christ was the king of Israel. Christ was the one who sat on David's throne. Christ's own death was called for by God. Without Christ's death, Israel was going to have no peace, just as in this instance, Israel would have no peace without the death of the king. This death was called for, right? Peter reminds us that the death of Jesus was called for. What does it say? Paul, uh, Peter says in his sermon at Pentecost that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. We may not like to think about this, but each and every one of us deserves to suffer and die for our own sin. It's only because the man Christ Jesus was our sacrifice that we will be able to go free. And that we, we do go free. Not so differently from Agag, 
Jesus died a terrible death to bring peace to Israel. The king dies so that Israel can have peace with God. The difference, of course, is that Agag died for his own sin. Jesus was perfect. He had no sin to die for. He only had one group of people to die for, and that was us, his people. Nevertheless, the death of Agag is a job now finished. Just as the death of Jesus is the completion of God's own work. What does Jesus say on the cross? It is finished. This isn't the only time that a leader in Israel is confronted with his own sin. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, David has committed an egregious sin against God. He commits adultery. He commits murder. Yet look at how radically different the outcome of his sin is from what we see with Saul today, right? When David speaks to the prophet, he says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. The same words Saul uses. Saul says, I have sinned. David says, I have sinned. And yet, God accepts David's repentance, and he doesn't accept Saul's. Here's what Martin Luther says. It is indeed the same word, the same voice, the same face of compunction or repentance, but the hearts are very different. The hearts are very different. If you read this passage today and, and you think it's a commentary on the sort of political leaders that we need today, I think you need to look again. I'm not saying that we don't need leaders who are repentant, but that is not the point of the passage. If you think this passage is here just so that we can pick on Saul even more, you need to look again. Don't you relate to Saul, on some level to Saul here, right? This is a man who is self-deceived. He, he's convinced himself that it was right for him to do the wrong thing. He's telling himself that he's really a good person. Are you telling me you never, ever have that problem? We all have that problem. I have that problem. This is a warning about the dangers of pride. This is a warning about how pride separates us from God, right? It's, it's a warning to each of us that without humility, we will never know the acceptance of God and peace through His Son. Pride keeps us from Christ. Lancelot Andrews says this, Pride makes people ashamed to confess their sins, or else so, so to confess that one may see a plain difference between the confession of a proud sinner and a poor, humble sinner. The difference between the confession of the good and faithful and confession of evil and unfaithful. This is the difference between Saul's and David's confessions. Saul's confession smells of pride. Saul's confession smells of pride. I have sinned, yet honor me. Honor me. You, you have the nerve to say honor me. 
after you just admitted that you sinned. This is not a real confession of sin at all. You see, that, that different heart posture makes all the difference. When Saul gave his own version of repentance in this passage, we saw the response of Samuel. The Lord has rejected you. This is not repentance. I can see your heart, Saul. You're not sorry. You have no intention of turning. You don't despise your sin. You despise being caught. If we will not bow our head and our heart, we should not expect God to accept us. Pride will keep us from God. Your pride will keep you from Christ. It, it, it isn't because humility justifies you. Being a humble person doesn't make you righteous in God's sight. Right? Christ is the one who justifies people. Christ is the one who can present you blameless before the Father. Being humble doesn't do that. Humility won't justify you, but pride will keep you from taking hold of Christ. Pride will keep you from taking hold of Christ. And that's why pride is so dangerous. There are people the world over who think that they are good. That they don't need a Savior at all, since Saul included. Why grab hold of a Savior that you think you don't need? We can't fool him. He sees right through us. He can't be fooled just because we use the right words. Everyone else may look at us and think that we're modeling repentance, that we're such good people, but God really truly does know the heart. He sees through those shallow confessions. This is why David can say the exact same words as Saul, I have sinned, and yet have a totally different outcome. Instead of the condemnation that Saul gets from Samuel, Nathan one day will look at David and he will say those words, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Oh, those are sweet words. The Lord has put away your sin. The Lord has put away your sin. The Lord has put away this thing, this violation of his law. Can that be said of you? That God has put away your sin? If you know Christ, then your sin truly has been put away. But God didn't say that to Saul. How can he say that to David? After all, David is guilty. David's really sinned. Here, here is the answer. David is humble and Saul is proud. David knows he is sick and in need of a doctor. Saul thinks he's great and he needs the advantage of God's favor. Saul isn't far, by, far from Christ because he thinks he doesn't. Saul is far from Christ because he thinks he doesn't need him. David needs Christ the same way he needs breath. And so do each and every one of us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, 
If you hadn't sent your son, each of us would bear our own sin. Each of us would die for our own sin. But because of your son, that won't happen. Because of your spirit's work and applying Christ's work to our hearts, we will live and not die. And so would you bless us today by your word? Would you give us humility to admit our sin, repent of our wrongdoing, and take hold of Jesus? We ask you to do this for us. In Jesus' own name.